we've been looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and this morning at John, and their account of the arrest, or the betrayal, and the arrest, and the trial of Jesus, and the sentencing of Jesus. And this morning, we're going to be looking at, although in a slightly different way, we're going to use the visual things here in front of us, we're going to be looking at what took place in John's gospel as Jesus came before Pilate. John gives us the fullest account of the meeting between Jesus and Pilate. John, as we're going to see, uses stories, uses the images of the stories to make very profound points. In fact, in his gospel, at the very end of his gospel, he makes that clear. John writes at the end of John chapter 20, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written. These stories are written. These signs, these encounters, these events are written in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. These things are written. And so that account of Jesus before Pilate, Pilate the symbol of Roman power and Roman rule, the symbol of the crown in a sense, in the same way as, as the government has the powers of the crown and are often referred to, as often we've heard over the past week or two, the crown, the, the power and authority of the earthly state. Pilate was a symbol of that. And in Pilate's palace, Jesus stands before him. And we have an encounter between Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and the Kingdom of God, and Pilate, the representative of the kingdoms of this world, and all that they represent. And so, it's a long story. The encounter is very full. So, in order, rather just listening to me, we're going to watch it now. It's from John's Gospel. We're going to pick up from John chapter 18, verse 28. Jesus has been arrested. He's appeared before the high priest, and we're going to pick up where the, the Jewish leaders take um, Jesus before Pilate, and we're going to read right through to verse 22 of chapter 19, and we're going to watch it on a video a wee bit different for us. So let's watch that together. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So who is this Jesus? What is that confrontation as Pilate representing the power of human authority, the kingdoms of this world? As he confronts Jesus and undoubtedly, as you read that account, as you see that account, was challenged by Jesus and provoked by Jesus and was stirred to see, in a sense, many ways, what Jesus was talking about when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. And I don't think you can see that account or read the gospel account without being aware that Pilate was himself aware that Jesus was representing another kingdom, that other reality. Which, strangely enough, even in our contemporary world, in our secular age, there are many who are aware of there is more to the world than this. But who is this king? Well, John, not just in the account of his confrontation with Pilate, but of course in his whole gospel, as all the gospel writers did, is seeking to present the story of Jesus, to present the evidence before you, the, the judge and the jury, 
in order that you, in order the reader, will come to an understanding and a decision as to who Jesus is. The story of Easter and the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. The, of course, the events of Palm Sunday, which we are celebrating today, is one of the, the ten key events in the Gospels that are mentioned throughout the whole Gospels. There's other stories. As John says, there's other stories. Other Gospel writers come with other points to it. But the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem is at the very heart of that story about the kingdom. Let me read to you. The great crowd had come together for the festival, and they heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, John chapter 12. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion, see your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And at first his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. You see, Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, centuries before a king had come, or at least a leader of Israel had come. During the period, the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and New Testament, after Israel had been set free and Jerusalem had been set free from the bondage of the Greco-Persians, a leader had come riding on a horse and had been heralded as a king. And that in itself pointed back to King David riding into what became Jerusalem and claiming it as the capital for the unition of Israel, the united nation under his kingship. And so all of that line, even today, the procession of someone coming in, a royal procession, painting a picture, presenting a story, demonstrating a fact, but the facts that Jesus was presenting, the story that he was presenting, the imagery he was presenting was very different from a worldly king riding on a colt. Not pomp and circumstance, but humility and weakness and frailty in many ways. His kingdom is not of this world. And then when Jesus came into Jerusalem, the other gospel writers tell us he went into the temple. Interesting enough, John in his gospel records that event right back at the beginning in John chapter 2, where we read that Jesus came up for the Passover festival, went into, Jerusalem, went into the temple courts. He found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. And the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will rise it again, raise it again in three days. And they replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. 
And John quite deliberately, I don't think it was a case that there was two clearing of the temples, John quite deliberately takes the story of the clearing of the temples, of the throwing of the money, just scattering it. John quite clearly does that in order to make a point at the very beginning of his gospel that the kingdom that Jesus is bringing is a kingdom that doesn't primarily, primarily challenge the kingdoms of this world, although it does have an impact, but it's primarily a kingdom where it challenges people's relationship with God. It challenges actually religion, other religions, and that's a challenge for a contemporary society and a world in which we live in today. It challenges that. It challenges the dead religion of human works, of human achievement, of buying your salvation through whatever it may be. And John wants to make it clear at the very beginning of his gospel that that's the kingdom that Jesus is about. That's the business. That's his calling. That's his mission. To turn the world upside down and to turn our thoughts about God and how we relate to God upside down. And then Jesus appears in the temple again in John's gospel at the great festival of the tabernacles, which also led on to the festival of lights, and the Jewish people celebrated the fact that God had preserved them and brought them and provided for them in their long journey in the wilderness, and indeed in exile. And it's in that context that Jesus stands up in the temple courts and says in John 8 and verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That great theme of light in John's gospel that great theme of light that Herod is the beginning of his gospel, where he reads well-known verses in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then it talks about there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness and a testimony concerning the light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And in that temple, Jesus declares that. His kingdom is a kingdom of light as distinct to the kingdom of darkness. And all the events that took place culminating on that encounter with Pilate and the powers of darkness arrayed against the one who is the light of the world, that reminds us that this king is a king of light that illumines the soul, that transforms our understanding not only of God, but of who we are and how we relate to God. Jesus is the light of the world and the darkness and the lockdown and the COVID and the trials and difficulties of life cannot and will not overcome him. Kingdoms may rise and fall, but the kingdom of light 
of truth of Jesus endures forever. John particularly, of course, has the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Indeed, there is sometimes an argument there's as much evidence for that sacramental act, that action in John chapter 13, as there is for the breaking of bread. He actually doesn't refer to that explicitly, John, in his gospel. That's because, of course, it's been mentioned in the other gospels. Just before the Passover festival, John 13, Jesus knew that thou had come from to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and they had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel round his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And then Lord, then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And then Jesus goes on to say, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. I'm your king, and rightly so. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. You see, my friends, Pilate had power, the power over life and death. That's one of the angst that the Jewish authorities had, did they not? We can't crucify this man. If we could kill him, we would, but we can't. You only have the power to do that. And Pilate challenges Jesus when Jesus won't respond to him. Pilate says, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of greater sin. You see, Pilate was in a position that he had been placed in. Placed in by Caesar, but only placed in by God. He himself had no power. He was powerless. And as you can see, before the ebb and flow of the darkness of the human emotions that were stirred up, Pilate had to give in, even though in his own conscience he knew what was the right thing to do, he had to give in because ultimately he was powerless over those powers of darkness. He may have a title, may have a status, may have a position, but he was powerless. But interesting enough, the sign of power in Jesus' kingdom is not taking control over others and dominating them, but serving them. Notice again what John, John 12 says to us. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and they had come from God and was going to return to God. So what did he do? Boss the disciples about? No. He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped 
around him. Who is this king? This is a king who has all power and authority, but who serves a smelly, sweaty, far from perfect humanity. And he does that at the cost to himself. He strips off. He takes the very towel that would protect his modesty and uses that to dry his disciples' feet. His power is real. It's real as it's seen in service. And of course, John connects the whole pouring out of the water and everything else to other symbols. Earlier on in John's gospel, I not recall, but just throwing your mind back. Remember, the first miracle in John's gospel is taken where? At the wedding of Cana of Galilee. What does Jesus do there? He turns what? Water into wine. And then later on in John chapter 4, the woman, the Samaritan woman who comes to draw from the well, and he, he, he offers this woman a water that will last. If you use the gift of God, John 4 verse 10, and who is it that asks you for a drink? You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And then Jesus goes on to say, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and need to keep drawing again. And at the same festival where Jesus stands and says, I am the light of the world, Jesus also stands on that last and greatest day in John 7, we're told, and shouts out in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living waters will flow from within them, the water of life that Jesus pours out and washes, not our bodies, but our souls with. Who is this king? Very different from Caesar in Rome. Very different from his appointee, Pilate, in the palace. Certainly very different from the leaders, the Jewish leaders of the Sanhedrin. And of course, not all were persuaded, even in the Sanhedrin. John particularly tells us that Nicodemus, who'd already encountered Jesus and been told that he needed to be born again of water and the Word, and water and the Spirit. Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea, as they look at the evidence, as they see the story played out before them, they are convinced that Jesus is the King that demands their response and calls for their attention. And so on that cross, when Pilate puts up the sign we saw in the video and in the story, places a notice and fastens to the cross, it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in the languages of the ancient world and of that area, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, so that the whole world might be proclaimed and might hear and might understand that Jesus is the King 
And when the chief priests and the Jews protest, Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews. And Pilate answers, what I have written, I have written. How Pilate, later on in life, must have wondered what he had been a party to and how the dark powers of the kings that he served had led him down a road to crucifying the Son of God. But John, obviously, as we draw to a close, wants to see all of these things as a sign that causes us to believe the cross and the events as we'll be recounting this coming week of all that took place on the cross as Jesus speaks to his mother, as Jesus dies, and we're told that the, 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 the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies, John 19 and verse 31, didn't want the bodies left on the cross, and so they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore come and break the legs of the first man who'd been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. Notice again that emphasis on truth. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled not one of his bones will be broken and as another scripture says they will look on the one they have pierced jesus died who is this king the one who enters into the reality of human experience tragically many have died because of covid but my friends this year many have died because of a whole host of things our destiny is Death for all of us. And who is this king? Removes himself from that reality as much as he can and protects himself from the realities of life in his palace or in his wealth or in his status or in his circumstances. No, he enters into that. dies our death. And it's John who recounts for us that on Easter Sunday, when Simon Peter and John run to the tomb, and John quite meticulously here tells us what they see. They see the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around his head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, John, the disciple, reaches the tomb. He also goes inside. He sees and believes. And the Jesus who rises from that tomb on that dawn of Easter Sunday, the light of the world, the King of kings and Lord of life, stands and speaks Mary's and meets with the disciples, and instead of ranting and raving, says, peace be with you. And as he stands before doubting Thomas, Thomas's doubts collapse as he falls to his knees and says, my Lord and my God. Who is this king? Remember that wee series we did before Christmas? Well, it's all connected together. You'll be glad to hear. 
Who is this king presented to? It's not just through these events, but through the gospel accounts. Who is this king that was betrayed by a friend's kiss? Who was let down by the disciples? Who was dragged off in an illegal trumped-up charges? tried when he shouldn't have been, brought before Pilate and failed by the man, the one man who had, humanly speaking, authority over life and death. Who is this king? It's Jesus, the light of life, the truth, and the way, the resurrection, and the life. Our only Savior, our only Lord, the only true king. Hallelujah. What a saviour. And as we journey through this Holy Week, and as many of us will gather here very simply to share in the bread and wine of communion, and as on Friday evening and providing the opportunity, and some folk have already responded, we'll watch a film, well, the end of one of the films, just recounting those events and just taking time to reflect upon that. I invite you, all of you, to take time to discover more of who this king is and what it truly means to live, not in the kingdom of this world, not in Pilate's kingdom, not in the kingdom that comes and goes, the passing kingdoms, but the kingdom of the one and only king even Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man. We're going to reflect upon that together as we now hear the song, which is, I can't remember what it is, but Greg, I will bring it up on the screen. Jesus Christ, I think, on your sacrifice, I think it is. For most of us listening to this, either here or online, these are familiar stories, but it may be that someone is listening to this and they're not so familiar, at least not in the way that they've perhaps been shared and presented this morning. These things have been written, we're told so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. And as we recognize, O oh God, the powerlessness of so many of the so-called powers of this world, and the darkness of the kingdoms of this world, a theme that the Apostle Paul explores and develops. So we turn to the light of life, to the one who has promised to pour within us the water of the Spirit, life-changing, life-refreshing, life-renewing streams of Holy Spirit that will flow through us and out into a dry and parched land. We drink. We draw. We bow the knee. And like Thomas, we say, my Lord and my God. 
and how we pray, Lord Jesus Christ, that in these days, as you are lifted up, you will indeed draw men and women to yourself, that by your Spirit you will do that work of quickening human hearts, that even as people pass and see the, the banner outside, or go online and see information about this church, or about any church up and down our land that is open over this Easter season, that by your Spirit you will draw those who are seeking the Lord where they may be found who have become disillusioned with the kingdoms of this world. And there are many in our society who, perhaps for very understandable reasons, are increasingly disillusioned with the kingdoms of this world. And in seeking and searching, all sorts of other religions and other philosophies come along, and we see how people are led into all of these things, some of them very presentable, others not so presentable, but none of them leading to you. And so we pray, O oh God, our Father, that in your mercy you would open eyes, you would stir hearts, and you would draw people to faith and trust in King Jesus. And in the quietness we now gather, both here and in our own homes, and there'll be circumstances and situations that are on our hearts, Lord, Jesus Christ, hear us as we pray. And now may the God, who brought again from the dead His own Son, our only Saviour, Jesus Christ, keep our hearts and minds fixed in the love and in the knowledge of Him. And may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit rest upon us and journey with us this Palm Sunday and forevermore. Amen.